I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. What's going on, everybody? Happy Monday. We're going to talk about game one, and I think we're going to talk about it in a very positive light, because to be quite frank, I don't think there was much that we can really complain about. There will be bits, and I'm sure we'll hit on those too. Wouldn't be balanced analysis if we didn't give you the best and the worst. The worst was I didn't go to sleep till 4am, and today has been a very, very difficult day for me. We're recording on Sunday. As usual, I'm joined by Mr. Greg Manakis. Got it right. Boom. First try. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm good, man. I'm good. Yeah, it's so funny. We were in our little uh, Twitter chat, the Celtics Legend chat. There was a funny little exchange about people trying to guess how to pronounce my name. And you just came in at the end off the top rope like, boom, it's Manakis. And I was like, yeah, man, my guy's learning. He's learning. Dude, I'm telling you, the basketball reference way of like um, writing people's names out so the pronunciations are correct is goated. I don't <laughs> think enough people take advantage of spelling it out the way basketball reference do. Because as soon as you do that, everything changes. There's no way you can uh, mispronounce anything like yours was man, nay, as in a horse goes nay, <laughs> and then kiss, manay kiss. And uh, once I put that, I felt like, a, yeah, I really understand the value of basketball reference. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, and I, like we were talking about before you came on, I actually just released a song kind of poking fun at the fact that people always mispronounce my name. Like the, the whole point of the song is literally I spell my name out in the hook for people <laughs> to stop messing it up. It's very funny. Yeah, multiple times as well. You even have the letters popping up on the video. And, yeah. yeah. M-A-N-E-I-E-K-I-S. I remember. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. seen that song a few times. Everybody who's listening, if you follow me or Will or Greg or a lot of weird Celtics Twitter, then I'm guaranteeing you've seen this song floating around over the last 24, 48 hours. Yeah, it's got almost like 3,000 views on Twitter, which is pretty cool. So shout out to you, Weird Celtics Twitter, for helping me promote supporting Asian art. Let's go. Now, I do want to say that we need to get you doing a Celtics kind of hype video for um, the new season. Okay. Um, I think we need to do this. I think it's something that we all need to... Uh, we need to figure out how we're going to make it work because there's even if it's just like shots of like us guys and a couple of uh, the Celtic the like the Celtics fans around Twitter, and we build like this like mashup video and we should do something cool just because why not? We're going to have nothing else to do for three or four months, so uh, I think that'd be dope. That'd be fun, man. I'm down. Sign me up. I'm not very good in front of the camera, so this is going to be tough. It'll be a learning experience, though, man. You got yeah, it. Yeah, dude. I'm not. Um, I'm not one to like Vogue. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I, I was saying, man, you got great facial hair. That's you just got to show it off. I see you stroking it right there. I'm trying Bro. to get. I'm trying to get like you, man. Whenever I see you and Will, I always feel so inept, right? I, I don't. I feel like less of a man because you guys come on with these like fully groomed beards, and I got like just little. I got like the Paul Pierce facial hair. You know what I mean? It's like patchy and not so great. But I'm just you know clinging to whatever I got. Bro, I can shave this off on a Monday and like um it's growing out of my face by a Friday. <laughs> just like, like just Wolverine, just flex. Yeah, it's back. just like, yeah, I don't wanna why are you shaving me off? You live in a cold country. <laughs> I am your warmth. Like so I just leave it on there now, you know. Um I, I used to comb it and brush it and do all this stuff, but I went to sleep at four AM, dude. I weren't doing none of that this morning. It was um it was a really, really rough sleep, you know, four AM sleep. You're up at nine, so, so what five hours. 
Well, that's one of those games you got to stay up for and watch live, right? You can't catch that the next day. Yeah, I mean, I have a ritual where I always watch the first game of the season live. First game of the season, first game of the playoffs. No matter what time they start, no matter who the opposition is, um, I watch that game live. And then generally, the rest of the series now, unless there's some serious value, so like um, it's a win-or-go-home game, mm-hmm. and I feel like Boston could actually win, then I'll watch it. But if like Boston are down three and up, then I'll just catch that fourth game the next morning. Because if they lose, then they're out. If they win, then I'm going to be in that position again in two more days and it becomes a vicious cycle. I feel you, man. Let's get into it. Let's talk game one. I feel like there's a lot of good stuff we can get to. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to give props to Will because um, Will the other day basically saw into the future, opened the windows and saw into Brad Stevens' brain and base and called out that this was going to be a, a big Jabari Parker series. And um, early on, first quarter minutes for Jabari Parker, I think Jabari played really well. There were stretches of offensive dominance. I think maybe dominance is a bit too much, but it felt like that. It felt like every time he got the ball, he made the right decision. He hit some frees. He got some mid-range shots. Um, I think that, as Will said, Will said this is going to be a scoring series. And Boston did exactly what they needed to in putting out a player that has his defensive limitations, but also has a big untapped offensive upside. And I thought Jabari Parker actually played really well in this game. Yeah, he was he was a nice little surprise in there, man. Shout out Will. Shout out Will. It was a great call. Um, I listened to the last pod. If, if y'all listening right now and didn't check out Will and Adam's uh, series preview, it's an unbelievable listen. It got me hype. It got me believing. Uh, so definitely check that out. But Jabari was great, man. And, you know, as much as they targeted him on defense, I don't necessarily think that like inserting Grant Williams over Jabari Parker necessarily makes a difference when it's James Harden or Kevin Durant ISOing you at the top of the, you know, top of the key. Like Grant Williams is not stopping any, either of those guys in an ISO situation. So you might as well put the guy in, uh, in the game that can offer you a little bit more um, against what the Nets are doing on defense, which it seems like they're a very switch happy team in this series, especially sitting DeAndre Jordan in favor of Blake Griffin and Jeff Green at the five. So I, I think that we're, we're going to need to continue to see Jabari Parker. My only issue with that, Adam, is it's kind of playing into what the Nets want to do with us, right? Is they want us to get into that ISO heavy ball. So I was wondering um, if, if you, if you think that continuing to play Jabari is going to actually be a net negative in the long run because he's not a great passer. Yeah, I think so. I think that you need to put Jabari in a position to be a play finisher. And if you're asking him to um, create for himself or find looks for himself, you're in a bad way. And like you say, you are then playing directly into uh, Brooklyn's hands. But in, in kind of like in an argument to that, I don't think that Grant Williams is a great passer. I don't think that he's great, um, a great self-creator either. And then when you look at the roster as a whole, there's not really many options off that bench that can come in at the four or five and become a creator as well as a finisher. You had that in Daniel Toyce. Daniel Toyce is no longer on the roster. Um, Luke Cornett definitely isn't that. And I think um, I'm surprised he didn't get a look at some points just because of the spacing he provides. But Jabari Parker gives you that spacing with more mobility. And I do think that I still believe that this series suits Grant Williams due to the switchability on um, offense and defense and needing to fight through those switches and cause some rotations. Grant gives you that spacing that to me is far more reliable than what Jabari Parker's spacing is. 
But mm-hmm. if you Brad Stevens said in the press there, he was just going for Jabari due to the in, the increased size, legit size, legit length, and uh, the disruption that Jabari can give you when he's um he's cutting off ball or he's trying to get into the post. Yeah, and I agree that I don't think Grant or Luke Cornett are necessarily good passers. However, I would say that they are better ball movers than Jabari Parker and uh, Tristan Thompson, right? So ball mover is just someone that is kind of just facilitating second side action if you you know swing it through the top of the key. And I don't think Tristan Thompson is, is a guy that can do that. So if, if I were to sit anybody in the big man rotation in favor of increasing our overall total passing numbers, I would probably sit Tristan Thompson, even though he does provide a little bit more in the offensive rebounding side of things. Um, I, I, one of the numbers that stood out to me, Adam, I, I looked this up, the Celtics averaged 284 passes per game in the regular season. They were at 262 in that game last night. And it was a, it was a very ISO heavy game on both ends of the court. Uh, Brooklyn only had a total of 240 passes, which is like a ridiculously low number. I think the the lowest number for any team in the regular season was in like the 270s per game. So like it was a very ISO heavy game. So for me, if we want to beat the Nets, we can't get into this, you know, whip it out and measure them game of ISO ball. It can't be that. It's got to be it's got to be ball moving. And I think that Luke Cornett or Grant Williams can actually provide a little bit more of that. So I, I agree with you. I was surprised that they didn't get a look in the first game just because I thought that was necessary in that game is just to get the ball moving side to side, and it just didn't happen. I mean, you mentioned sitting Tristan Thompson, and he's going to be a name of contention for quite a few people. Um, to open the game, he was getting switched on to James Harden a lot at the perimeter and being asked mm-hmm. to guard Harden. And Harden was just having his way, basically. If we're being quite honest, Harden toyed with Tristan Thompson. What I but will we- say is... Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah, was, but we're, that's kind of what we want, though, right? We want them to play ISO-heavy ball because we don't want uh, the Joe Harris's of the world to get hot. Right? Joe Harris was kind of invisible last night. So if you yeah. bait them into going ISO, then you might be able to also bait them into thinking they have to do it on their own and they don't need the other guys on the team. So that's kind of what I saw from that. Um, and I don't think Tristan played poorly. You know, I think they they definitely hunted him a little bit, but I thought he – he was okay on the court. Um, it's just you you need to think about is he the guy you want to leave on an island? Yeah, so for me it was like switching him onto the perimeter was basically exactly what you signed him for. You signed him for his switchability. His athleticism isn't where it used to be, but he can still guard um I'd say two through five at points. You know, he's gonna struggle to stay in front of guys like James Harden. He's going to struggle to contain ISO scorers of that level. But if we're setting the bar at containing one of the best ISO scorers in the league, then I think we're being a little bit ridiculous in terms mm-hmm. of just like the the people that were saying you need to sit Tristan Thompson for this series. He can't guard Harden. Well, unfortunately, 99.9% of the league can't guard Harden. If they could, he wouldn't be James Harden. That's just the way this works. I do agree with you. I do think that he had some good moments. He had some um bad moments as well some lapses i like that one block he got up i think it was on claxton if i'm not mistaken it might have been on someone else but he really got up uh showed some athleticism i think it was harden actually was it on harden yeah it was, yeah, it was rob williams that got the claxton mm-hmm. block yeah okay um what i will say is that i, I agree you want to force them into more isolations you want to try and limit the the secondary scorers like a joe harris like a blake griffin um, but by doing that, you also need to make sure that your defense is on a string. So when you do get blown by in an isolation situation, 
just a help defender ready to rotate over and protect the rim and force that kick out. And then, you know, hopefully you're switched on enough to either tip the ball out into, out into the sidelines or get that steal and get the run out. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think overall I thought the defense was pretty good, man. I mean, if, you, if you hold the Nets to 104 points, you, you would think that you're in the game a little bit more than we were at the end of the game, right? It's just for whatever reason last night we just could not put the ball in the basket. And um, I, I think going forward, I would not expect the Celtics to be able to hold the Nets to 104, right? They're, they're going to get hot, but we can do our best to hold them under 115, I feel like that's a more realistic number to shoot for is to hold them around, you know, 112 to 115. And then it, the question is, where do we get our offense from? And, you know, that that's probably more of, of the issue because we can't we can't beat the Brooklyn in a 130. You know, if it's in if it's close to 130, we're not beating the Nets. They have more offensive firepower than we do. But we can score 110 to 115 points per game. It's just we can't have the poor shooting numbers that we did. Yeah, I mean, I tweeted it out with roughly three minutes to go, saying the fact that um, with less, with roughly three minutes left in the game, I think Brooklyn only had ninety-four points, and mm-hmm. that it's that itself is an indicator of exceptional defense on Boston's part. I get it that new, um, sorry, Brooklyn didn't really get heated up from deep. They didn't. They struggled all night from three-point land, and that's not going to be the case throughout this series. Uh, that that shooting slump was very unsustainable for a team with that much offensive talent. But at the same time, limiting Jason Tatum in the second second half of the game, Kemba Walker's poor shooting, limiting Evan Fournier's shooting, those are unsustainable too. So there's areas of growth for both of these teams as the series gets deeper. And it's going to be the one that adjusts quickly, quickest and... Um, manages to sustain those adjustments over a period of games that are going to have that offensive advantage. Because I think Kemba Walker, um, when he turned the Jets on and he got those mismatches onto guys like Blake, he looked electric. He just began to kind of shy away from the rim and settle for those mid-range jumpers, and they just were not falling for him. Yeah, but he was getting his shot, right? Will and I were kind of talking about this. We actually watched a game together yesterday. Um, So he was like, man, what do you think it is with Kemba? Is this like a health thing? Is this a mental thing? I'm like, I don't, I think he's just missing shots tonight, man. That, that's all, that's all I saw. He, he was creating so much space on that step back jumper. I mean, anybody that was on him wasn't really bothering his shot by any means. I think for him, he was just out of rhythm because he got in that early foul trouble. And a couple of times he drove to the hoop and didn't get calls. And that's one of the things with Kemba. If he's not getting calls, what I've seen is he gets a little bit frustrated. And I, I didn't really see that in the past. Um, but this year, for whatever reason, he feels like he's getting the contact and it's not getting the the respect of the referees, um, which then causes him to settle a little bit more for those mid-range jumpers because he's not getting the respect around the rim. But I, I thought Kemba played okay. One point that you just brought up is is something that I think is going to be really important moving forward, which is the 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 coaching, right? The game-to-game adjustments that Stevens needs to make over Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni. Because Stevens does make good adjustments game-to-game. And I I think uh, Steve Nash actually probably outcoached Stevens in terms of in-game adjustments yesterday, but I thought Stevens came in with a better game plan than what Steve Nash came in with. I think when when uh, Nash decided to pretty much bench Blake Griffin and to go with Jeff Green at the five and a little bit more Claxton, that's when you started to see the Nets pull away a little bit more. Um, but I think Stevens, what he does going into game two is going to give us the best chance to win because Stevens has a little bit more experience than Nash does 
even though Mike D'Antoni, you know, is kind of riding shotgun there with with Steve Nash to help him out with those game to game adjustments. What do you, what are you expecting to see um, Stevens do in game two, or what are your thoughts on that? I think there's going to be a lot more um, motion offense, a lot more off ball offense. Um, he spoke about that during the post game, saying there needs to be a lot more movement off ball, a lot more cutting, a lot more baseline runs. Uh, just guys creating for others off off ball with gravity and manipulating defense. And we speak about this all the time. It's one of the things I harp on about all the time is being able to manipulate a defense without the ball in your hand. And against a team like Brooklyn, you're going to need to force those soft switches early to create driving lanes. Um, I remember watching the... What was that game I was watching yesterday? It was... Um, it was a really good game, and for the life of me, I cannot remember. Oh, it was Dallas Clippers. Okay. And the, and the Clippers done a really good job of forcing... No, sorry. The Mavs done a really good job of forcing the Clippers into early soft switches and then attacking the the space that got created during those soft switches. Um, and I think that's something that Boston needs to look to do. Force Brooklyn into making early early defensive adjustments on the fly and then punish them once they start doing it wrong and they start doing it to anticipate a movement that isn't actually going to happen. This is going to be very much a mental game of chess in terms of opening up offensive opportunities for Boston just because they need to have the best look available to stand any chance of staying um, in touching distance with this Brooklyn team. Because Boston can't afford to make a mistake offensively. Brooklyn can make mistakes and still end up with a, a really good shot for whoever gets the ball in their hands. And that's the big difference. So who who do you see as the players that can actually execute the strategy that you're you're talking about going into game two? Do you think the rotation is going to change at all? I think we're seeing more Peyton Pritchard. Um, I think that Pritchard did look a bit um, susceptible on defense, but we did he didn't have enough time to really implement anything on offense. But he has scoring gravity. He, he has uh, an amount of range that forces a defense to respect him once he's peeling off, off pin downs or lifting out of corners. Neesmith is exactly the same. I don't think this is a series for Romeo. I don't mm -hmm. think Romeo has any respect as a scorer. So putting him in there is simply a defensive decision that I don't think he's ready for, to be quite honest with you. Um, if I'm being genuinely serious, I think that you need to have guys that have good good scoring gravity and whether that's because they take a high volume of shots or they convert at a very good conversion rate either way you need to force defenses to stay home on guys so maybe grant williams gets a look in this game mm -hmm. i don't think luke Cornette does because Cornette just is is too slow doesn't have the mobility necessary to force these uh defensive movements and then i, I think that the team we saw yesterday apart from more pritchard and possibly some Grant Williams is going to be your best bet. I don't think there's anyone else that could really come in and change the narrative for this team. What we saw was their best, their best guys. Mm -hmm. I know this is crazy. I think Tremont Waters needs to play a little bit. Um, I think Peyton Pritchard, you're right, probably play, needs to play more than seven minutes a game. But we need more guys on the court that aren't afraid to attack the rim and to make plays off the dribble. And if Pritchard's not going to do it, I don't think I don't necessarily think the answer is just like more Marcus Smart or you know more Neesmith minutes. We need a guy that can break down the defense. And as much as Tremont, I don't think is ready to play. He is probably our best option in doing that coming off the bench, other than the guys that we've already mentioned. So if, if we're talking about like a wild card guy to throw out there, I'd like to see Tremont get a get a shot. You know, it it, it would have to come in the minutes where KD's off the floor. 
right? Because they would just absolutely because if you notice, Steve Nash likes to sit uh, KD and Kyrie at the same time, right? So he he lets James yeah. Harden kind of run run the show on his own for a little bit. So I think it has to come in those minutes where Harden's playing point, um, so that it's not just targeting Tremont. Uh, but I, I agree with you. Trey, uh, Peyton Pritchard needs to needs to play more than seven minutes. It's back to back games. Peyton Pritchard has played, I think, seven minutes exactly, and he hasn't gotten a chance in the second half. Right? He hasn't gotten his second stint. And you would think that he's kind of earned enough with the coaching staff and with the team to throw him out there in the second half because of what he does provide with that spacing. He provides so much, so much by being able to space the floor up to thirty feet and lifting off the corners. I think is super important. So what I what I want to see a little bit more is running a little bit more action towards Peyton Pritchard's side. You know, maybe we could get, um, you know, dribble handoff going towards Pritchard, make the defense suck in and, you know, cause uh, Brooklyn into rotation where they have to make a decision. Are they going to stay with the corner? They're going to have to X out to the corner. But Pritchard needs to be, you know, strong side with the, you know, off the ball so that he can either open up that driving lane because they don't leave him or if they do leave him, he's there to knock down that three. So I, I agree. And, and my wild card tri- uh, my wild card would be maybe play Tremont. So, so I'm all for giving Tremont minutes, um, simply because if you rewatch most of that game in the second half, um, Boston's penetration just wasn't there. Mm-mm. It just wasn't good at all. They'd get to the free throw line extended, and then Brooklyn did a really good job of kind of sinking in, taking away the rim, and forcing you to have to kick back out and then re-execute a secondary up- offensive option. And that led to a lot of mid-range and a lot of frees that just were out of rhythm, um, didn't come within the flow of the offense. And to be honest with you, I was quite impressed with how Brooklyn executed their rim defense. So Tremont Waters gives you that additional penetration. It's kind of what he specializes in. The only thing I would say is it's one thing being able to penetrate in the regular season, but having to do that against the Brooklyn Nets in the playoffs where things are very physical. There's videos flying around of how um, Joe Harris was being super physical early. You've got that video going around of KD damn near ripping Tatum's arm off out of the, out of the socket. I just don't know if Tremont is capable of providing the offensive punch and dealing with the level of physicality that he's going to have to face just because he hasn't seen that type of basketball before and being asked to provide an offensive punch off the bench in your first playoff game against a team as good as Brooklyn may be one step too far. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear you on that. I hear you on that. Are there any other adjustments that you would make or you expect to see? Honestly, I think the, uh, for me, like um, if you want Jabari Parker in the game and you don't want him shooting threes, I'd like to see some more wedge screens being thrown his way just to get him into the post. Um, Some hammer sets. I think we're going to see more hammer screens being placed on the weak side Um, just to get Aaron Neesmith in motion. I think that Aaron Neesmith isn't being utilized to his best ability. Um, he's a movement shooter. That's where he's, he thrives. He thrives peeling off a screen, catching and shooting in motion. He's being used as a spot-up guy and asked to attack closeouts. And he's very capable of that. But if you want somebody that's going to be able to be a consistent three-point knockdown shooter in motion, then Aaron Neesmith has to be that guy. And you're going to need somebody to do that to negate Joe Harris's impact on the other side of the floor when he gets hot. So more off-ball motion for Aaron Neesmith, in my opinion, could unlock his shooting more than what we've seen so far in his career, which is what this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you need to do that just because you need a secondary scorer to match those bulk hits that Joe Harris is going to be getting on you inevitably in the next few games. 
Okay. Yeah, I, li- I like that. I like that. I, I too, want to see more out of Neesmith. I think uh, another adjustment I would look for is a little bit more Kyrie hunting. Um, you know, we had a couple of nice possessions yeah. early in the game where we got Tatum on the Kyrie. You know, Tatum's first couple buckets, it was a, a step back on Kyrie, a uh, drive by Blake Griffin where he forced a switch, and then he, he was in rhythm, so he hit a step back three over KD, right? And then pretty much the rest of the game, I think he didn't hit another jump shot. I think the rest of his le- the rest of his buckets were layups and free throws. You know, so I think we need to hunt Kyrie a little bit more, especially early in the game and try and get him off his rhythm. Um, and I don't necessarily know if that means forcing a switch with Tatum. One thing I, I'm I'm going to keep an eye out for is does Brad trust Marcus Smart in the post against Kyrie? I know that's something that he's gone to a lot out of ATOs over the years is he really likes going to Marcus in the post. He thinks that Marcus has a physical advantage over pretty much any guard that's guarding him. And Marcus is a good decision maker out of the post. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see if they, if they try and force a little bit of foul trouble by putting Marcus in the post and seeing if we can create a little bit of action similar to what, I forget what game it was. Um, there's that one game where some team just like forced all this action against Kemba. It was the heat, right? When the heat, um, just targeted Kemba in the post and they didn't look to score out of that, right? They looked to force double teams and then create action with shooters, so I, I'm wondering if we can get a little bit more markets in the post against Kyrie to make him play defense and potentially either get him in foul trouble or create a little bit more rotation from the Brooklyn defense. Yeah, and I think that's a great idea. I think um, the the times when Boston did hunt Kyrie in game one, they were super successful. Um, you could see that Kyrie was trying defensively. He was, And I think he had some good defensive possessions. There's no point lying and saying he didn't play He's well. He's competitive. Yeah, he he tries, you know, he wants to stay in front of guys and he takes pride on that end of the floor. Um, But there was definitely moments where I felt that Boston had a very clear advantage on both Griffin and Griffin, Griffin, Kyrie. (laughs) Um, What I will say is like, if you're going to do that, that's fine. But you need to make sure that when you are running those secondary actions, you're limiting um, KD's ability to close out. Maybe you need Mm -hmm. to run very screen to give KD something extra to navigate. Because KD, um, his length and his uh, his speed really threw Tatum off his game. And yeah, in my opinion, if you're running secondary actions to to hit shooters, you're running it to get Tatum an open look on the perimeter. So you need to set a secondary screen um, around the mid range area, like a pin down, like basically mm-hmm. like an NFL blocker, right? Like you're trying to block KD's route to close out on Tatum, just to give Tatum mm-hmm. those extra three or four seconds, because. KD shut him down and Tatum's a, giving that extra screen to create those extra few seconds to get that shot off. Maybe what Boston need to look to do consistently so Tatum's impact isn't um, hindered throughout the entire series. That's a great point. KD's a problem, you know, both contestant shots and in passing lanes. But I think a very simple action could accomplish it. You know, um, start with smart on the wing, screen down for Tatum, enter the ball to Tatum on the, on the, on the foul line extended. Look for Smart in the post, right? Tatum dumps the ball down to Smart in the post and then cuts through to the opposite corner. You know, bring KD out of the play completely. And you have some, you know, double staggered coming for Neesmith or something like that with Smart seeing that action towards the top of the key. Just little things that we could do to kind of exploit what what it is that Brooklyn is is good at defensively. And KD is definitely, definitely a strength man. And when when you talk about the way that KD shut down Tatum, to me, one of the biggest things that this series is going to teach us is what uh, Jason Tatum actually learns from his experiences being guarded by KD. 
because one of the things when you go up against Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, you're you know six eight versus six three, six four, and you can shoot over the top of them. What happens when you see someone who's actually in your weight class? And KD is you know above Jason Tatum's weight class. So what can Tatum learn from this series? Like man, everything that I do so well did not work against Kevin Durant. So what what am I going to work on in the off season in order to exploit a matchup against a guy like KD? So I I don't know if he's going to be able to make these um, adjustments within the series, but what I'm seeing is Jason Tatum's got to get better at moving off the ball and shooting off the screens, man. He's so much of what he does is so methodical. And when you have a guy that's seven feet with a seven, four wingspan guard in you methodical, ain't going to cut it. So he's, he's gotta, he's gotta mix it up somehow and throw KD off his rhythm. Cause it looks like KD knows every Jason Tatum move in the book right now. Yeah. KD had Jason Tatum in his back pocket and that's not, bad a bad thing for Tatum at the end of the day this is arguably the best player in the league mm-hmm. um incredible size incredible lateral movement great length can score for fun but when he locks in on defense he's also one of the best um man-to-man defenders in the league and I don't think it's uh a knock on Jason Tatum that he got locked down in this game but what I do think is Tatum needs to be very comfortable putting the ball on the ball on the floor and absorbing contact because the way you get KD to sag back off you isn't through hitting shots. It's through forcing him into the foul trouble. It's through drawing fouls off him, getting to the line and making it. So he has to give you that bit of extra room because he knows you're going to jump into him. He knows you're going to veer step over and get that, that rear view foul. And if you can put him in a position where he cannot afford to play so close on you and contest you so tightly while now you can start to go back to the stuff that works because you've you put him in a position where he has to allow you that type of room yeah i mean katie's length was a huge problem man tatum shot four three-pointers in the game last night Tatum you know we want to see Tatum close to 10 threes a game and he just realized pretty quickly that first three he hit on KD that was KD kind of just measuring what that move looks like and then from the rest of the game he he had that thing on lock you know even the one where JT got fouled and got uh three free throws out of it KD was right there and he was he he's he's got Jason Tatum timed and that's the worst feeling that you can have as a basketball player is when the defender has you timed and Jason Tatum is a rhythm player. However, I would like to say that Tatum also played really good defense on KD. And it looked like Tatum also has KD time to some to some degree. KD and Tatum are very similar in that they're both, especially off the dribble, they're rhythm shooters. And if you can break that rhythm or if you can time that rhythm, it 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 definitely messes with their flow. You know. KD, one of the things that he does, and this is just talking about what Tatum's impact um, defensively looked like, KD loves the hang dribble. You know, he's going to go through the legs a couple times, lefty hang, and he's going to read your feet. He's going to look down. If you're on your heels, he's pulling that thing. And one thing that works against KD is you don't let him get to that hang. The moment he goes up to hang, you have to attack that left-hand dribble. And if you don't attack it, then, you know, you're screwed. And Tatum, that one play where he had Katie stumbling and blocked his shot, that that's what he looked like he had had that on tape, right? He had that on loop and was just playing it. The moment Katie hangs, attack that high side and make him go around the back or make him counter. But you cannot allow Kevin Durant to get into a rhythm. I thought JD, JT did a really good job. And that's something that I'm looking forward to in this series. To be a great player in the NBA, you have to do it on both ends of the court. 
And we saw Jason Tatum do that in the first game against Washington. He absolutely dominated on both ends of the court. He was by far the best defensive player in that game. Um, he needs to do it in this series too. And he's, you know, he's cutting his teeth in this series, but it's important and it's going to be really big for his development long-term. Yeah. Sometimes like I always look at it like um, you have to have these series where you're playing against somebody that is a similar type of player to you, but on a level or two above you to be able to realize like, Hey, this is the next step for me. And I can take this away from his game and import it into my game in my mm. style. And that's going to take me to another level. I don't think we see the adjustments from Tatum this series like that, but I do think that this the performance we saw from Tatum in game one isn't what we're going to see for the rest of the games. I do think Tatum has more tricks in his bag. Um, he Tatum did seem rattled a little bit, to be honest with you, just with the physicality, the way KD kind of got up in his grill, took that rhythm away, as you say. And... I think that Tatum will adjust. He'll go back and watch the film and look for ways to manipulate KD. And it's going to that's going to be uh, one of the sub-battles that we see throughout this series. Same as Kemba versus Kyrie is a sub-battle. Who is going to be more passable on defense? Who is going to handle being a target on defense more between these two guys? Uh, I do think we need to see Fournier involved a lot more than what mm -hmm. he was. Far too often I felt he was a spectator. Um I don't. I think he's too good to be left standing around on a weak side wing. I think you need to involve him in actions far more because he's going to be the guy that gives you the gravity to open up those lanes more. But I think that, you know, we've spoke for half hour, man, and we haven't hit on the one guy. It's crazy. That was the best guy in Boston, in a Boston uniform. I mean, there's no argument. Obviously, we're speaking about our boy, Mr. Robert Williams. What did you see from him? And how would you like to see him build on this into game two man i mean nine blocks what more can you say about my man bobby bitcoin just like that absolutely you know just dominating the game on both ends of the court um but defensively his presence i mean you heard Kyrie speak about it you don't hear people give credit the way that Kyrie gave credit in the post game where he was like hey like his timing's impressive we're going to be more aware of him in game two because he's one of those guys man if you're not ready for his athleticism, it, it's it's overwhelming. He is the best athlete on the court almost every single game outside of, say, for like Zion Williamson. You know, he's just another level of athlete. And with, with Robert Williams, what I saw was a guy that is going to continue to raise his value, whether it's for the Celtics or for, you know, a trade piece in the offseason. Because this dude, man, if you can do this against the best players in the world, that's more than anything you do during an 82 game regular season. If, if you give someone a guy you can dream on, then that, that value is just going to go through the roof. There's, there, I mean, dude, nine blocks in against the Brooklyn Nets is crazy. A block on a James Harden step back, dude. That was the Insane. one that I found the most impressive out of all of the blocks was the fact that you timed James Harden's step back. You got up and contested the shot, blocked it, and didn't encroach on his landing space to give up the foul. Like, do you know how much we talk about timing and getting guys time? Do you know how much you need to really process everything that's going on at that exact minute in time to avoid encroaching in the in the landing space after getting a block like that? I thought that was the most impressive block of the um of the game, and I also think it's a sign of what Robert Williams is capable of, and he's not even fully healthy yet, dude. 
Yeah, it reminds me of that that time he blocked Anthony Davis. I think it may have been his rookie year or his second year where AD was just like, oh my God, this guy blocked my jumper. Like nobody blocks my jumper. And it's funny because it, 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 that's the only guy in the league that you really see doing that. Anthony Davis is the only guy that could block a James Harden three-pointer, maybe like Mitch Robinson too. But like it's it's crazy to see someone do that. But even more than the blocks, dude, Robert Williams was affecting things around the rim, just like making people change their shots, especially KD. KD was worried about Robert Williams in, in the in the lane. Anytime KD drove and had to shoot his floater, he just put a little bit more arc on it and was a little bit off whenever Robert Williams was in the game. And he was a presence, man. It reminded me of I went to see the the Boston Celtics play the Orlando Magic in I think 2008 or 2009, the year KG was hurt, where we lost in game seven. And Dwight Howard changed every single shot on the floor. You could see the Boston Celtics thinking about Dwight Howard and where he was. I remember there was this one play where Ray Allen drove baseline and Dwight Howard was in the paint. Ray Allen stopped like, you know, one step inside the three-point line and had to put more arc on the shot than he normally would and airballed it because Dwight Howard was just there. You know, and that's the impact that I saw Robert Williams have in that game last night is every single person on the court was just like, where is this guy? And is he going to block my shot? So it'll be interesting to see how they game plan against him in game two, because although he, you know, blocked James Harden's shot, he hasn't been great when he's been left on an island against against quick guys. So I, I would expect them to attack him a little bit more, try to get into his body, get foul trouble. Yeah, I mean, I always class it as a rim protection is when you can get blocks and alter shots at the rim. rim de- a rim deterrent is somebody that makes you not want to attack the rim in general, mm. you know? I like that. And I think those are two different types of players. But generally, you know, a tall guy like Rudy Gobert is a rim protector, but he's not a rim deterrent. Guys will p- try and put Rudy Gobert into a pick and roll and then get downhill to the rim. A rim deterrent is when you're like, even if I get in front of this guy, he's still a risk to block me on the glass or, you know, he's going to swap the ball into the stands. And while Rudy Gobert can do that, he doesn't have the the athleticism or the burst of the burst of pace that Robert Williams does. And I think that the fact that he's a rim protector and a rim deterrent makes him increasingly more valuable for the Celtics because rim deterrents operate best in a switch scheme like what Boston run. Uh, rim protectors operate best in a drop. In Robert Williams, you have the best of both worlds. Um, if we're talking about adjustments again, one adjustment I'd like to see is put Rob in the short roll more. If you want some ball facilitation, he only got one assist in that game last night, and it was off the, it was off like a offensive rebound tip that he hustled for and managed. Yep, um, I think we should see him run a little bit more short roll action. Get him to do some facilitation, some secondary actions there, because his passing level is good enough for that to work, and you can keep a good pace of um, play. By setting that drag screen, rolling into the mid range, into like um, the short roll area around the free throw line extended. I like to call it the short roll pocket around mm-hmm. that area. Um, roll into the short roll pocket and then redirect the ball to a shooter that's lifting off the corners. I think that that's something that's simple yet can be very effective. And then you can have Rob either continue rolling into the dunker spot or going to set a secondary screen for somebody to cut baseline. So uh, Rob Williams to me unlocks so much on both ends of the floor just because of his ability to jump out of the gym, his ability to pass and see things really quickly for a big man that hasn't got much game time. And I don't think that 
we need to put too much stock in whether he starts or comes off the bench. I just think we need to put mm-hmm. a lot of stock in. Can he stay healthy for this series? Because the Celtics are really going to need him. Yeah, I, I, I have a question for you. Uh, you. You're probably more well-versed in this than I am. If if a team is going switch heavy, is the short roll really even an option, though? I feel like that's more if, if they're if they're in a drop or if, if they're trapping the pick and roll. And it feels like so, Brooklyn is is more switching. I think, if you, yeah, so you can manipulate it, though. So if if teams are switching consistently, then short roll becomes hard because you've always got someone in front of you. But you know that they're not going to switch if it's a Rob Williams, Jason Tatum pick and roll. They're going to keep their man or they're going to try and trap Tatum or mm-hmm. somebody's going to start dropping against you. Uh, I think Rob Williams, if Rob Williams runs hard into that short roll, like he's rolling into the rim, he's going to sell that cut to his defender who's going to... Backpedal, okay. backpedal, and then obviously you can just create that space by a quick stop. But it all comes down to trusting Rob Williams to basically create a touch pass, get the ball, and re- redistribute mm-hmm. it in a couple of seconds. But you do it will evolve um, really hard. It'd be hard on the joints because of the sprinting, the stopping. And I also don't think that Brooklyn will continue to run that switch heavy offense um, defense. Sorry, if they want to be trapping guys like Tatum. Because mm-hmm. you can't switch and trap because you'll always leave that weak side corner open. Yeah. And I think uh, Rob in the short role could also unleash Evan Fournier. You know, we got to get him coming coming off of screens. And we can't, I, there were a couple times last night where Fournier in ISO, you kind of saw that he's not the best isolation player. Um, he had Joe Harris in ISO a couple times and couldn't really do anything with him, settle for a couple jump shots. So I would like to see Fournier, you know, get some more second side action where he just makes a quick decision and gets downhill or shoots the shot. Um, but that, that's a good point, man. One one thing you talked about Rob Williams coming off the bench. There was a point made in maybe it was the the Warriors Grizzlies game, I think, where they were talking about how it's important to if you have a guy who's prone to getting in foul trouble like Rob Williams. You don't want to start him because referees often kind of set the tone of physicality early in the game, and they're more prone to call fouls on big men early in the game. I don't know if that's true. That was something that was brought up. I think Doris Burke brought it up on the broadcast. Um, so I was just actually kind of interested in that. You know, bringing Rob off the bench would that necessarily maybe negate potential foul trouble as we kind of get a good feel for how the refs are calling the game? That's just something I wanted to throw out there. I really liked that point that was made. I never thought about it before. Um, so that especially with Rob's toe right now, I think coming off the bench works best for him. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to message someone I know after this and see if they can tell me um, what Rob's fouls are like um, when he starts compared to when he comes off the bench and see if we can find any, uh, any data points that back that up. Uh, the other thing I do want to say is, again, um, operating a short roll against a switch-heavy offense, bat screens are going to be your best friend in, in mm-hmm. that type of scenario. Um, if somebody does switch, you need to be switching them into a bat screen so there's so many ways to manipulate, but it all comes down to one very simple aspect that uh, everyone who's a Celtics fan has preached this year, and that's movement. It all comes down to movement, setting screens that don't rely with the guy on the ball. And I think if Boston can embrace that more, setting those back screens to kill. If you're back screening the, the guy that's switching onto the big, then the big's now unimpeded on the roll. You don't even need to worry about the short roll anymore. You've got the lob every time. Mm-hmm. Um, Adjustments are going to be made, and it's how you counter those adjustments. And the teams that counter quickest and um, most... What's the word I'm looking for, Greg? They counter quickest and... uh, Decisive? 
there we go, most decisively, is going <laughs> to be the one that takes game two. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to game two, man. I don't necessarily think if you, I don't know if you want to get into predictions right now. I don't think that we're going to beat the Brooklyn Nets. I think we need to win in, in the seven game series. If we have any chance of beating them, we need to win one of the first three games. I don't necessarily know that I see game two being the game that we win. I think game three is more likely coming back home with a little home cooking. Um, and then if we can go into game four down to one with the you know full capacity TD Garden, maybe the crowd can win us game four. And if the crowd wins us game four, then it's a three game series, you know, one tweaked ankle or one off shooting night or one Jason Tatum 50 point game. And then, you know, we're in business. And if we can somehow force a game seven, bro, you know, all the cards are on the table and it, it, anything can happen. So I'm looking forward to can the Celtics steal one of these next two games so that game four is not, you know, the gentleman sweep game where they let us get one game um, where game four is two one. So do you, do you think the Celtics have any chance in game two here? Honestly, I think they do. I'm more confident in their ability to snag two or three games now than I was after that first game. Um, I think that both teams underperformed offensively and overperformed defensively. And I think that's going to level out a little bit over the next few games. Um, I still think Brad Stevens has an edge in, as you said, in game-to-game adjustments. But we're going to need to see him have some coaching games of his life. Uh, I know Keith Smith tweeted this out that Brad was having one of the best coaching games he ever had against Brooklyn in terms of every tr- possession was um, a defined set and Boston mm-hmm. were really rigid. So um, vocal, man. So vocal. Yeah. But we're going to need to see him counter whatever Steve Nash does. And it's hard when Mike D'Antoni is whispering in Steve Nash's ear and Brad Stevens doesn't have that mentor helping him. Um, so it's going to be tough, but I, I, I think that this could end up being, um, if they can tie it up in four games at 2-2, I'm going to feel really comfortable about this. But my realistic expectation still stands at um, you'll be lucky to stretch it to six games. I still want to be uh, realistic here. For sure. For sure. I'm with you on that, man. Is there anything else you wanted to hit? No, nah, man, I think we've done nothing. we got everything in. How about you? No, I feel I feel good with this, man. We're right at that forty-five minute mark. You know, you know that you said that's the sweet spot. So I hope everyone uh, that's been listening is, is is having a good time and believing that the Celtics might be able to, you know, get a win in the next two games here. Right then, everybody, if you've been listening and you've enjoyed the show, please leave that five star written review if you're listening on Apple. If you're listening on any other podcasting platform, uh, you can't leave a written review because the feature's not there. So. It'd be great if you could recommend us to friends, family, people at work, people at school, depends on how old you are. Um, you know, if you work in a car, if you're in a car sales lot and you're selling cars all day, just pump us out on the big speaker and let everybody know who we are. We'd appreciate it a lot. Uh, make sure you follow me at Adam Taylor MBA. Make sure you follow Greg at... At, on Twitter, it's at Mini Minnow. It's he'll hyperlink it. Um, but I, if y'all could follow me on Instagram at Minakis underscore Music. As I said at the beginning of the pod, I just released a new track. I would love for people to check it out and Weird Celtics Twitter come through, man. It's at like almost three thousand views on Twitter. I'd love to get that number up into you know multiple uh, hundred thousands of views. So Weird Celtics Twitter, I'm calling on you. Uh, let's help spread that message. All right, everybody, you have a great day, and you'll hear from us again on Wednesday. Also, if you do want to chop it up with me, I'll be live on Locker Room uh, today, Monday, at 4 p.m. Eastern. Come through and say, hey, I'll be there until 5 p.m. Eastern, and then Keith Smith will be there from 5 until 6 p.m. So lots of Celtics content. Um, 
look forward to speaking and seeing all of you guys there or guys and girls and again have a good day peace out Ain't disrespecting you hate is I ain't sweating your opinion Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative Than stressing my wages, ageless Every time I lay a verse down One play at a time, keep it moving like a first down And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this MJ never made it to the majors Still, he chased greatness, expected that he might fail And I might too, I might never get to pop champagne Celebrating with the crew, this ain't everything I am It's something that I do